If you're a Kia K5 GT and Kia Forte GT owner, this is your reminder to breathe. See that sophisticated interior? Enjoy those sensations. And now, imagine how you look from the outside and that speed that only a Kia GT sedan can give you. Sorry, I can't help but get excited. For those lives full of thrilling emotions, the all-powerful, all-fun Kia GT sedans. Kia, movement that inspires. Limited inventory available. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. Boxing history time again. We're talking anniversaries also again. I mean, I guess it just goes to show how much inspiration we t- we take from current events that not much not as much is going on and so we're just kind of relying on the history. But that means I'm here with my dude Arispina, CompuBox operator and fellow fight history fanatic. Like myself, what up dude? How are you? How's everything, my man? Doing all right, man. Uh I'm always excited to talk history with you. I'm always excited to go over shit that, you know, especially this era from the 1970s, like late 70s, early 80s is really fun. And that's what we're doing today, man. Absolutely. And uh, today, you know, the card that we're profiling is one of the marquee ones of boxing history for a variety of reasons. You know, the players involved in it, um, the results of the fights. And like you said, man, the time place of it, of you know, what would happen subsequently with their careers afterwards and everything like that. So what we're talking about happened today, November 30th, 1979. It was a date of an astounding, outstanding doubleheader promoted by top rank, which is Wilfred Benitez, undefeated, but the boy wonder defending his welterweight championship against 1976 Olympic gold medalist and darling seven-up kid Sugar Ray Leonard, which in itself is a huge event as a fight. But hold up, hold up. Not only that, on the undercard, marvelous Marvin Hagler, for years being called the uncrowned champion and deserving of a title shot, was finally going to get his chance against the really rough and rugged Vito Interfermo. Couldn't get any better for a doubleheader. I mean, just those four names, well, not even those four, just like one or two of those names is an entire podcast easily. Mm-hmm. But we're going to try to condense the entire event into this one. It was 43 years ago. Today on 1979, uh, you know, November 30th, 1979. So just to underscore the importance of this event, but also how how much things have changed, how different things are in terms of how boxing's received, the coverage, etc., and the broadcasts. This was on a Friday. It was on ABC. It wasn't some massive pay-per-view like you would expect today. So it was totally accessible to a lot of fans and yeah, I mean, just that alone is is pretty crazy. The fact that it happened the way that it happened. And I mean, massive event, dude. Huge event. And obviously also a, a portent of things to come, for sure. And the fact, again, man, this, the, to show you again the time period when this took place. This took place on ABC, on free television. Fights like this, fights like Ali Spinks 2, which almost the entire country watched live on just free television. It was a whole different time. A card like Benitez Leonard on its own would be a massive pay-per-view event today that would charge you like between $75 to $80 for a, for a pay-per-view to watch that. Or if you want to be ringside for that, thousands of dollars for a ringside ticket. It would have everybody on boxing Twitter salivating, rightly, rightfully so. And then you add Marvelous Marvin Hagler, 
fighting Vito Interfermo, finally getting his title shot against Vito Interfermo as the main undercard attraction of that fight. That right there in today's per you know, I don't, they would first off that wouldn't even be a, a whole card because they would, the the promoters would justify that Hagler Interfermo could be its own main event, which it could have been anywhere else. You know, the fact that they put it they put it with Benitez Leonard makes it even more of a special event because both of those cards on their own, just their one fight holds weight to be their own main event, especially, you know, Benitez Leonard. But like Hagler and Tefermo was a big fight in itself. That was a fight that everybody was clamoring for. Hagler was finally, after years of neglect and all kinds of shit that he was going through, was finally going to get, you know, the chance to become champion. And most people felt it was going to be his rightful coronation. And Tefermo was another guy that rough and rugged came through the trenches of the, the middleweight scene of the 70s, which was really dreadful to go through. Finally became champion in late 78, beating Hugo Coro and shit. Like, everybody knew that was going to be an absolute banger. But, you know, just to have them together just made that so much more special. So it's un almost unfathomable today, 43 years later, Pat, like you said, to have that, that type of card actually happening. You know what I mean? But back in 1979, boxing was in a different place, and they were able to do something like that. Yeah, dude, it's, I guess... Uh working it working our way toward the main event we'll start with kind of a haggler and Fermo. why not mm -hmm. it's marvelous marvin he also recently unfortunately passed away um so that's still kind of raw i think for a lot of people especially because of the return to the international boxing hall of fame this past year and he was a big uh feature every year at the hall of fame and this was kind of the first year without him and without several other fighters who had passed away in the meanwhile too but um you know, I guess it's just important to remember rewinding a, a little bit in Marvin Hagler's history and U.S. history, too. And I'll try to condense it as much as I can so we don't go off in the weeds too much. But uh, Marvin, Marvin Hagler, even though he fought out of Massachusetts and was massive around Brockton and whatnot, just like Mar uh, Marciano, came from New Newark, New Jersey, yeah. and... Uh, a fairly important thing to remember just to kind of explain who Marvin Hagler was, how he thought, why he acted the way he acted, and how paranoid he was and how pissed off and frustrated he was throughout his boxing career. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that this is the reason for it. I'm saying that if you take this into account, you, I think, can understand a bit more. Back in Newark in the 1960s, uh, in the late 1960s, during the Civil Rights Movement, in the summer of 1967, there were riots around the U.S., like all around the U.S. in just about any major city, and especially in the uh, on the West Coast. Philadelphia, Newark, New York uh, had a number of riots, and in Newark, it was like its own thing. It was really bad, really, really bad, obviously stemming from a lot of racial and social injustice and inequality. Uh, but also a couple of inciting incidents, kind of like the George Floyd protests in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, in any case, how that involves Marvin Hagler was that his family home, he said that his mom hid them, he and his siblings, in their home during the riots for like three days. And then their home was eventually destroyed. And, or at least damaged really badly. And so they moved from Newark to Massachusetts. And so basically that I think was really formative in terms of uh, Marvin Hagler's distrust for a lot of people, especially distrust for, I mean, dude, just fucking putting it plainly, white authority. Yes, I was about to bring that up. Good point, Pat. 
I mean, just fucking putting it plainly, that's just how how I think he felt for a lot of his career. And this also, this Antuafermo fight buildup, the fucking result, you know, everything well, just just help, fueled yeah. it, just fueled it. So, like you said, Hagler moves to Brockton, and like you know, going coming from the Newark riots and the things that were all the tumultuous, that was all the tumultuous, you know, things that were going down with the country. And with the riots and uh, the tension, everything, it was, you know, America was definitely like in a hot pot at that point. And Hagler being a kid and witnessing all of this stuff as a child and being traumatized by that certainly didn't help him when he moves to, to Brockton, Massachusetts, which I'm from Massachusetts. All right. So I can even relate to this. It's like a whole different world from Newark. Sure. There's parts out there. It's really bad. There's other things like that. You can relate to it in certain ways, but in terms of just, you know, the population and the way things are out there, it's it's different. And Hagler was in a world, like you said, now he's, instead of where he was in Newark, now he's in Brockton, where certain parts is a lot of, you know, Italian-Americans, Irish-Americans, Portuguese, this and that. No one really liked him. And the way he gets in the boxing, more or less, is that at one point, you know, as a teenager, he goes to a party. I think you can help me corroborate this. And... um Gets into an argument with a guy, a, another guy that ends up becoming a fighter himself named Darnell Wingfall, who was a bully around the neighborhood and just an overall tough guy. And I think they were arguing over a woman or something for the matter, but Hagler and Wingfall go outside for a fight and Wingfall beat him up. And, you know, people, everybody witnessed this, everything like that. And Hagler was embarrassed. He was hurt, but he actually, you know, he got beat up and he said to himself, I'm never going to let this happen to me again. And he's seeked out to go to a gym to go find out you know how to fight so first gym he ends up at is um a guy who if you listen to the show he's probably most known for working with, uh, with peter mcneely and his name was uh vinnie vecchione Vecchi- was it vecchione vecchione i guess vecchione i would yeah imagine, yeah but, I don't Ve- know. Yeah. but that's the first gym from you know a bu- uh, from george kimball's four kings book and a couple other you know Hagler accounts that's the first gym Hagler ended up at. It wasn't at the Petronelli gym. He he wandered into Benny Vecchioni's gym. And like you just alluded to, Pat Hagler having a distrust now of, you know, white people and authority and stuff like that. He didn't say anything when he went into that gym. You know, he just sat on the bench and just got really quiet and just kind of observed everything. It was kind of, wasn't going to go out of his way to approach anyone. He was going to wait till someone kind of approached him. And then, you know, cause he's just doing that. And he said that, in three days that he sat there, Vecchioni, no one even came, no one yet looked in his direction, no one acknowledged him, no one, nothing. So he eventually left there because just nothing, he felt nothing was going to happen. Probably for the best, for the best, for the best, because in years later, Vecchioni literally was just known for working for Peter McNeely in that stupid farce <laughs> that he had when the Tyson fight in the Pizza Hut commercial. That was it. There was literally nothing else he ever did of worth of note besides just training, you know, local guys in New England. So that was a blessing in disguise for Hagler. Um, now he ends up at the Petronelli gym owned by Goody and um, was his brother, Pat. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, over there, Hagler did the same thing. He didn't approach anyone, just kind of sat on the bench, just got really quiet and just, you know, observed. Finally, I think it was Goody approached him after like the second or third day and walked up to him and said, son, would you like to learn how to box? Hagler looked at him and said, I do. I want to. And he said, okay, you know, and the rest it's of the very, time. It's a very passive aggressive way to fucking get a trainer, you know, yeah. just sitting there and like staring motherfuckers down until somebody's yeah, like, yeah. so what are you, what are you doing? What are you? Cause you're like that. I mean, look, man. And you know, coming hey, from it worked. gyms like that, there were kids that used to come to the gym too, that didn't talk. 
Like sometimes they would just go with a friend of theirs. I would watch them too as kids. We didn't know who they were That's because they, didn't, they weren't doing nothing. They would just kind of stand in the corner and observe whether they were well, shot or. And, and I mean, not to interject too much, but it, it takes balls, dude. It takes guts to to go into a boxing gym and to start like, you know, not like, not just go in there and kind of, you know, deep, 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 but to actually train, it takes fucking guts, man. Because if you walk into a gym, especially when you're younger, you feel like all eyes are on you and they are to a degree. When you walk in, you're a foreigner and you haven't been in there and people, everybody knows each other in that gym. And all of a sudden you'd yeah, see it. It's intimidating, you know, thonk, you know, thonk, 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 yeah. you know, there's a bunch of noise and shit. People, it's crazy. People are still glancing at you. All of a sudden they're hitting the head bad. They're kind of looking at you like, Oh, who's that? You know? And then you walk into the trainer and like, Oh, is this going to be someone trying to join us? Like it's, it can be nerve wracking, but Hagler went up there, you know, explained who he was, yada, yada, yada. And they, they picked him up and, you know, the rest is history. He became a prodigy right away because he had a work ethic that no one had ever seen before. You know, early on, he told he told um, Petronelli, he was like, yeah, I'm going to be champion of the world one day. Petronelli, he was still a kid. So Petronelli just kind of like, you know, he's like an early teenager. Petronelli just kind of joked it off. He was like, yeah, that's great, kid. He was like, when you become champion, I'll be your manager. And, you know, you couldn't write it any better than that. They They said that back in the day, he used to run and that when he was when he was running, like way back in the day, he used to mutter to himself, like, uh, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill them all. Nobody can stop me. Nobody can stop me from killing him. And he'd just sit there muttering to himself run, like in during his road work because he was just he had a one track mind as far as like what he wanted to do. And he was also, a um, you know, a highly competent, if not very good amateur, too. He wasn't just some guy. Uh, I, sometimes that kind of seems to be the, you know, he's a straight fighter. It's like, no, dude, he was a fucking boxer. He was very well-schooled and he knew what he was doing in there. Even if he had a fairly, you know, kind of rough style or an aggressive physical style. But even so, um, the funny thing is when you like going into this fight and, and when I going into the Antuafermo fight. So, I mean, sorry, I don't want to fast forward too much because it's important. Like what he went through to that point is important because Philadelphia in particular, <clears throat> uh, the middleweight division during that time, it's like the very top wasn't super, it wasn't super top heavy, but on that kind of like a minus to like C plus level, bro, super fucking thick, real deep, super fucking deep. And Philadelphia in particular had a number of middleweights that were really, really good. A number of those East Coast cities had had uh, <clears throat> middleweights that were really good. And those were the fighters that Marvin Hagler had to go through in order yes. to get that middleweight title shot. And even then, even fucking all the way back then, it was like overdue. You know, people were writing about Marvin Hagler and saying like, what, what's it, what is it going to take? Like, why yeah. is this guy not getting his title shot? And so, I mean, uh, it's funny also because the way that he was written about was not like he was a power puncher or anything, but he was more written about like he was a, a boxer puncher with some emphasis on the boxer, for sure. Like, he wasn't known as like a destroyer. Totally. And it should be noted, buddy. You know, it should be noted, too, that like, so when he turned pro, he turned pro in 1973. And he was just right after he won the National AAU Championship. That's a big award, especially back then. That was a big, big tournament. It was right on par with the Golden Gloves and everything else. And that would put you on track to, you know, if you stayed as an amateur and you win more awards, like that would put you on track to eventual, you know, at least a, um, 
a shot at the Olympics. The thing with Aglo is that he was impatient. The 72 games had just passed. I don't think he was really ready to wait, you know, three and a half, four years to um for the next for the next shot. And I remember he was quoted as saying too that like, you know, trophies don't buy groceries or something to the effect of that. And so he turns pro, but with no fanfare, even though he wins the AU championship, it's obviously not the Olympic gold medalist. And, you know, the uh, past Olympics with Sugar Ray Seals winning it, everything that just passed. So Hagler's in a transition. He has to come up the hard way. Not unlike, you know, not like guys like Sugar Ray Leonard and Howard Davis who are all, you know, guaranteed contracts with um, networks already and just going to be featured and making six-figure paydays um, from their pro debut. Hagler wasn't making shit. He turns pro at Brockton High School. Like, he had to, you know, um, cat, uh, like crawl his way to the top even before he went to Philly because there was already a bunch of roadblocks that were already thrown in his way too, you know what I mean? Like, he was beating a lot of the guys in the local New England scene, and he finally got a chance to um, avenge his uh, street beatdown against the notorious Dor- uh, Dornell Wingfall and um, <laughs> in a fight in a battle with unbeatens ended up beating him, and I think he beat him a couple of times. But... Already, you know, by the time he ends up fighting um, Sugar Ray Seals in 1974, Hagler is just a guy that's been on the New England scene. Like, he's not, he's not nationally known. Um, he's undefeated, but people, you know, he's a guy that's just been hardened, like you said, as the dude that's just in his mind. All he wants to do is seek and destroy and try to make it to the top. And he's doing it the hard way. He hasn't been coddled, um, and he hasn't been fed any cupcakes. And... When he fights Seals in a TV studio, of all things, I, you know, I don't think the fight was ever filmed because obviously the film would have been shown by now. But we've seen photos of it, and it looks fascinating, right? It's like literally like a television studio. Yeah. Like the, the curtains film. and all yeah. that type of shit. Yeah, it looks fucking funky. It really does. Like you're about to film like a TV show or something, and then you just see like a small audience around there, and there's Hagler and there's Sugar Ray Seals right there going at it. And and I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that is the fight that Ray Seals later on, according to him, said that that he was convinced that they were going to do some sort of exhibition, yes, or, or something to that effect, and that it was not going to be like a you know full on whatever, and that he got there and that Hagler was like fucking raring to go, and he was like, oh, and I mean I have no idea. That sounds kind of weird, but. But whatever. I mean, it's not impossible. Um, but, but that if being Sam Silverman, if Sam Silverman, the uh, the longtime New England famous New England promoter, I think he was behind that fight because I think he passed away a couple of years afterwards. If he was behind that, then he probably I wouldn't put him past him to um, convince Seals that he was coming in for just an easy coddle, you know, whatever it may be. <laughs> Yeah, I but, don't know, man. I mean, I'm like I said, it's not impossible, but it just it's kind of a weird story. But, but even so, this, even so, he beat Seals, right? Who was the 1972 Olympic gold medalist? So it was and almost kind of that. like, yeah, it was like making a point. You know, it was making a big point for him. And he still couldn't catch a break after that. If anything, that made it even tougher for him because people are now just like, whoa, who the fuck is this? He has no name. He has no money to attach to it, and like it's just a big risk. And he just whooped up the Olympic gold medalist. That people, you know, I don't think Seals had the same clamor that Leonard and everyone else did, but like he was still a guy that people had a lot of promise in, you know what I mean? And he got cooked in that fight. So yep. it's like, you know. <clears throat> and he was he was the next Sugar Ray before Ray Leonard was. Yes, yeah, Sugar Ray Seals exactly. So again, man, it took years. It took for a while. The mid seventies, Hagler was still 
when Carlos Munz gets people, you know, here's the thing too, Pat, right? People always say, oh, you know, Munzon could have fought Hagler, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 not a, not at all. Hagler was still going through the ranks at this point, fighting. He was fighting often and gaining a lot of experience. But by 1975, 76, he wasn't even considered even close to a title shot. If anything, people were still talking about him in hushed tones and being like, eh, man, should we even risk ourselves against a guy like this? Yeah, it was tough for it was tough for him to even break into that uh, Philadelphia scene by then. Yes. You know it, that scene alone, that just that scene, not even never mind the other places that uh, were producing fighters. That scene alone was rough, man. And so even just breaking into that scene was tough, and he did, but he did it with a couple of tough losses that he wound up avenging or avenging avenging. Fucking, what am I talking about? Avenging. Obviously, but that being said, it was it didn't come without you know paying a price, dude. He toiled on this circuit, basically. You know, he was uh running the gauntlet. That was the fucking gauntlet, was this pack of fucking middleweights here, dude. And he was forced to go there. And and like you said, so Carlos Monzon retires. And by the time Carlos Monzon retired, it was because he was struggling in his last handful of fights. He was either getting buzzed, rocked, wobbled, you know, or having some sort of difficulty with whoever he was fighting. And they were pretty good fighters, too. It's not like he was struggling with scrubs, but I think that he realized that it was time to, and on top of that, uh, coupled with like all of his legal issues and the destructive lifestyle he was leading, I think that he just knew it was time to go he retires and i think it was 1972 rodrigo valdez uh, i'm sorry you said 72 you meant like 77 i think around. I, I, I might have yes yeah. okay yeah sorry uh or he damn i just i just had it up and i was looking at it so apparently i look i didn't retain it very well yeah sorry you're correct so retired in 77 not 72 and then rodrigo valdez uh wound up winning the middleweight championship after that like you you mentioned uh hugo coro and basically that's kind of where marvin Hagler's path intertwined with vito yes. Antofermo, who you know also was from the east coast was also with uh an italian team it's not to say that like all east coast italians knew each other but the boxing community is small and so in any case, uh, it was pondered that these two would eventually meet at some point a couple years before this. And then finally, it was in, of course, I navigated away, but in 1979 uh, in Monaco. So by this time, like I said, uh, Marvin Hagler's already run the gauntlet through the Philadelphia middleweights and gotten his vengeance where he needed it. And people have been calling for a middleweight championship shot for Marvin Hagler for a good year or two by now. And so the middleweight championship kind of getting passed around or, you know, there's no firm leader. It was a weird transition after that, after, after um, not to cut you off, but like after Munzon retired. It really was because Munzon was that dominant champion for a long time. Actually, how we're going to relate this to the welterweights in a minute, but like with Jose Napolis, but like Munzon was the dominant champion for a long time at middleweight from the very beginning after he knocked out um, Nino Benvenuti. So he retires and his nemesis for the past couple of years, Rodrigo Valdez finally takes the throne. As we've talked about in past shows before, Valdez, who looks so formidable, against other middleweights before then and against Munzon, you know, running him the gauntlet twice and, you know, Benny Briscoe, yada, yada, yada. All of a sudden he starts looking kind of mediocre when he becomes champion. Like he's made a couple of defenses, but the, clearly the spark or whatever was pushing him when Munzon was still active is gone now. And 
when he loses to Hugo Coro, that's when the middleweight division is just kind of like in a flux where you just kind of, well, 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 well. because. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> he wasn't looking very dominant as a, as a middleweight champion, Valdez, that is. And then when Hugo Coro beats him, I think it was kind of like a, a moment where people are like, well, where are we going to go from here? You know? Exactly. And so, but that also opened the door for Vito Antuofermo, who was ranked, I think, a little bit higher by the WBC uh, than Hagler or something like that. So I don't know if it was a connections thing, probably, because it sounded like uh, top rank was promoting Antuofermo at the time and stuff like that. But in any case, Antuofermo gets the shot at Hugo Coro, beats him. And then on top of that, uh, on the undercard, Marvin Hagler is fighting Norberto Cabrera. But the entire time, uh, so during the promotion of this fight, like the the idea of fights being taken to Monaco is a somewhat newer thing, or at least they're trying to hype up the pageantry. And we all know how this happens in various locales from the last few years. Macau, they did that shit for Macau for a couple of years. Whoa, you know, we're this is a brand, brand new thing. We're going to be doing this for years. And nothing ever happened. Uh They've gone back to Monaco in recent years, but it doesn't happen often. Similarly, they're trying to build up the idea of fights happening in Monaco more. And uh, when they were promoting this fight, supposedly the promotions for these fights in Monaco were super stiff. The fighters aren't supposed to talk. They're not promoting themselves. They just go through the motions and have the fights. And it's like this hoity-toity, everybody's having this fucking like $1,000 plate meal type of shit while fighters are fighting type of, you know, bullshit. And they're in tuxedos and whatnot. But during the promotion, Marvin Hagler, who's fighting on the undercard, spoke up and was like, basically, this is some bullshit. Like, I'm the one who's supposed to be getting the middleweight title shot. I don't know what the fuck is going on in the main event, but I'm going to tell you this, like, whoever is fighting, like, I'm going I'm to fight him next and blah, blah, blah. And I guess that took that caught everybody off guard because the European folks who were covering this were not expecting it. And so Marvin Hagler making the noise and blah, blah, blah. He's criticizing uh, the main event where Antua Formaro defeats Coro. And so that fight, the kind of the spark was lit for these two to finally meet. And on top of that, on top of uh, Marvin Hagler deserving this shot against Antua Fermo, he still took the short end of the stick by a lot to get the fight. Absolutely. It, it's, you know, Antifermo was one of those guys. He was from the New York area, really popular. He came up tough himself. He suffered a few losses early in his career, most notably because he had really, really bad scar tissue. Like the guy, if you breathe on him, it's kind of like Arturo Gotti years later. If like, you know, if you looked at him, if looking at him, he would start swelling up. Antifermo was different, not so much swelling, but he would just bleed. Like, if he, you breathe on him, he would get a nick on his eye. You know what I mean? And coming up through the scenes, he suffered losses to the likes of, like, Maurice Hope and, um, I believe, Howard Weston Jr. because of, you know, eye issues. But um, he was just a scrappy guy, another really tough dude from the division that, like, you know, had really good names on his ledger as well, like Emil Griffith and a few others. And probably, you know, a little bit more popular than Hagler was at that point, even though Hagler was the guy that, like, consensus – the uncrowned midway champion and Fermo had a following and was, and, you know, in terms of Aaron, be probably easier to promote. And so that's why that fight was be, you know, to be made with Hagler being known that, Hey, you would get the winner of this. So yeah, Hagler's pissed off because he felt like he wanted Coro and he wanted it right then and there, but you know, the stage was set, like you said, for, you know, for Antifermo in his first title fight, he had to fight a guy like Hagler. 
And that made it even bigger because Enterfermo was popular. He had a crowd-pleasing style, even though he was a mauler and a brawler. And Hagler was a guy that just fuming, been destroying everything in his path, um, righted the wrongs with um, the two losses that he had already had at this point and had gone through everyone in the division at, like, you know, we've talked about, like, we talked about he had to go through Philly. We even talk about how Don King fucked him around when he tried to join the U.S. title tournament, well, the U.S. championship tournament. And um, Goody Petronelli and the rest of them were just like, yo, why can't Hagler join? How are you going to put the guys that Hagler's already knocked out in this tournament and you won't put Hagler in there? And Don King tells Hagler, listen, if you drop the Petronellis and sign with me, you can be in the tournament. Everything will be good. And Hagler showing his loyalty said, I'm not doing that and kind of screwed him in as well. So that was the thing. Hagler being loyal to his tournament, to his, you know, his, his team and doing everything even brought more detriment to him trying to ascend the title because that's how boxing works. But at this point now, man, he's well, ultimately that was a good decision to not go into that fucking tournament. Thank God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just in general with his career, because it just showed like, you know, that type of loyalty that was very rare in boxing, but Bob Aram took a chance with, with, um, with Hagler, you know, you got to give it to him for that. He like, he got in business with the Petronellis. They didn't try to push him out on that and figured to himself too. I can make money. And either way I got into firm. I got Hagler some way I'm going to be controlling the midway championship. So that's how the stage was set. Yeah. And it, it uh, makes sense too, that I think that this was probably a, a bit of a hardcore matchup at the time in terms of interest. Cause neither okay. of them were super popular but it was two guys who were just going to throw down, you know, like it was, it was two fighters who were coming to fight no matter what you, you knew how Vito Antoro was going to fight. He was going to bore in. He wound up getting that scar tissue. Also, he was on the Sopranos too. I forgot about that shit until I was watching that shit the other night. And I was like, isn't that, be? it is. Vito oh, it was. That was yeah. yeah, dude. I totally forgot he was on that show. I was watching the other night, but in any case, um, yeah, dude, he'd bore in with his head. He had real bad scar tissue because he was always getting cut like in his eyebrows and stuff like that. Um, and he was going to throw. He wasn't a big puncher, but he was going to throw for sure. And so Hagler being Hagler also being the kind of guy who was not usually big on taking a backward step, but could, he could definitely, but usually wanted to push the fight. I think a lot of people knew that this was bound to be a good action fight. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, it, I, I think that it was. And I think that it wound up being a pretty good fight from an entertainment standpoint, especially in the later rounds as Hagler started to kind of slow down. Yes. But um, yeah, I mean, like this, well, I mean, I don't want to like, you know, try to like hold out like there's some sort of fucking uh, suspense. Like a lot of people know that this fight ended in a draw. And it was a fairly unceremonious draw. A lot of people thought that it was fairly controversial at the time. It was written about controversially. Dude, I mean, I'm I'm assuming you you thought Hagler won pretty firmly as well. Yeah, like I've watched it a few times and I'm not gonna like it's actually a little bit close. I thought it was a little bit closer than like it wasn't out and out like Hagler won fucking well, it wasn't the, like the worst robbery I've ever seen. No, 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 no. But Hagler, I thought, definitely won the fight and won it by a couple of points to spare. Absolutely. Like, he was out. But the thing is, what happened was that Hagler didn't go toe-to-toe with Interfermo because his corner even told him not to do that. Not that so much because they were worried Interfermo would overpower him, but because, like you said, Pat, like, he yeah, used Why do it? Why do that? It was just not – that was his fight. You were going to suffer some kind of injury. It was going to be grueling from doing that. And if you could outbox him easily by doing that, why not just do that? And that's what Hagler was doing. And he cut Interfermo to ribbons early on. You know, like, Interfermo had Nick over here. Yeah, Nick over here. This, there, that. Um, 
his cornerman, his cut man, was the legendary Freddie Brown, a guy whose career went back decades upon decades upon decades. Most notably, as you know, more modern fans most will probably remember him with his association with um Ray Arcel and Roberto Duran. But Freddie Brown had been around forever. And at one point during the fight, Freddie Brown apparently, as, as he was trying to work on Entefermo's cuts, he called on his assistant and said, help! <laughs> I don't think you could do that today, right? That you could have two separate cut men working on cuts at the same time in a fight? Uh, I mean... I haven't I, seen... I don't know. I, I've never seen that, personally. I think you probably could. Like, if they if you had, like, a trainer and somebody who's supposed to be there, yeah, probably. But if just, like, calling somebody over... No, like that was, no, that was a guy in the corner, but they said help, and they both were working on them. And yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that. I mean, Freddie Brown said... The fight would be stopped they, by then now, you okay. know? like Freddie Brown <laughs> said afterwards, he was quoted, cool you said, man, I'm getting old. He was like, in my prime, I could stop six cuts in under a minute and still have some time left over. <laughs> Which is nuts. I mean, and dude, we could do an entire podcast about, like, the, the art behind the yes. cut man and shit like that. Fools were... I think it, to some degree they're allowed to make some shit now, but that, but like, I don't even know if they're allowed to, but back up into the fucking seventies and eighties motherfuckers would literally have one of those little like doctor bags. One of the yes. ones that like, you know, brrr, like opens up and it'd be like full of little fucking bottles. Like blue. all of their old <laughs> that they made up on their own. Yeah. <laughs> You'd pull out some shit. It's got like a fucking skull and crossbones on and it. They were and all like, trading them with each other too. You like, fucking like pull out a cork and they're like, Ugh. <laughs> I forgot which cup man I was reading fucking about. Wild. Was saying that they were the, the cup man was saying I had, you know, I had this and I had like all the normal stuff that you would have in a corner, plus some illegal stuff that's definitely not allowed anymore. And then the guy said, I also had a couple of bottles of some special shit that I mixed up on my own of various things. Dude, <laughs> yeah, like I've I've seen some like, yeah, a couple of interviews where fools are talking about like, I got this powder, or I got this, this and yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. And then I got like special liniments. I'm like, what the fuck are special liniments, bro? <laughs> anyway, it, but yeah, so... So they're, uh, they're, like Freddie Brown, because as a lot of old school trainers, I'd I'd love to know how they would hold up today in the rules today. But back then, they were able to do their tricks, and to his credit, he was able to hold Entefermo's face up because of it. And um, it was a grueling fight. Hagler was outboxing him, but also too the print like you know Entefermo still coming, coming, coming. Eventually, he has to stop and trade with him too, which he did and willingly did. But it got it, you know Entefermo was able to shade some of the later rounds because of that. Because Hagler did slow down. Um, this was his first title fight. And I think people even said that he could see that there was a little bit of nerves with Hagler there too. With just He was on the big stage for the first time like this and just everything. And as Enterferno came on strong in the later rounds, I guess, you know, it pushed the fight slightly closer. But again, it's still kind of like indefensible that he won that fight. And if you watch it too, afterwards, when they announce it, they're like, Enterferno, you know, it's a draw. The um, Enterfermo's corner picks him up like he just won the world championship again, right? He's celebrating, he's raising his hands and all that. Hagler is dejected as shit, and you hear Cosell in the background, it's a drop! Enterfermo retains! Like, he's almost saying it incredulously. Like, he's still kind of keeping the straight path, but you can see it, you can hear it in his voice where he's kind of surprised, like, holy shit. And the most glaring part of it, and I don't know if this was actually true or not, but it's been written about, and it's been written about in various articles. Mills Lane, who was the referee, allegedly went up to Hagler after the fight and told him, hey, turn this way. Congratulations. You know, turn this way for the camera so when I raise your hand, we can, like, you know, pose for this and stuff like that. 
Yeah, that, I was reading that too. There's a really good uh, Sports Illustrated article by Pat Putnam yes. uh, about the fight. I mean, yeah, dude, it, uh, it it really should have gone Hagler's way. It was close, but I would I think that I would probably agree. He probably fought a little bit harder than he should early on, and then maybe didn't have enough gas for later or something. Even even so, I thought that he won. It should have been his fight by like a you know a couple of points, but it was one of those fights where it seemed like close but clear. Like yes. it, it, oh. there didn't seem like a yeah. There were some rounds where Enzo Fermo won for sure, but most of them were rounds where like Hagler was slowing down when he was keeping pace. He was consistently landing harder, consistently landing cleaner, and on top of that, like he even uh, even though he was mostly staying away from Antuofermo when he could. He still wound up cut like uh, around his right eye and was bleeding pretty good for the last like third of the fight. And so, I mean, you know, he it was still a pretty rough and tumble fight. And like I said, it was a good fight. In the last uh, maybe five, six rounds of the fight, dude, it was entertaining. It was actually a, a pretty good slugfest at a couple points, but it was just that, uh, <laughs> dude, when Antuofermo gets hit too because of the way that he's leaning in, there were times where he was like, you know, like just yeah. totally like whipping around and shit like that. And because he's so off balance and he's like leaping in and whatnot, almost looking like Nassim Hamed when he gets hit, you know, just so exaggerated. So yeah. that, that probably didn't help either, but also you have to wonder, like the judges are right there and they're seeing that shit. You would, it just seemed to me like if, if you're going to edge it either way, it would be to Hagler, but apparently not. You know, I think is the most damning thing is that after the fight, um, Bob Arum and others were like saying they we need to have an immediate rematch. This was bullshit, yada yada yada. And Jose Suleiman, you know, just uh on brand for him in the WBC. Totally we're not gonna fun. we're not gonna be uh he said we're not gonna be intimidated and pushed around by any promoters. We're gonna review the fight and then figure it out. But first, Alan Minter. Who are a- you to tell us to do the right thing? Yeah, right, yeah. And so Hagler had to wait. Almost like over a year, almost a, um, almost a year for another title fight because Alan Minter at that point was the mandatory challenger for the winner of that. And even though it was a draw and by most accounts, like you would think there should have been an immediate rematch right after that between Hagler and Defermo and Minter should have just waited and get the winner of that again. No, Minter got the title fight. Minter beats Antifermo in a controversial fight, just about as controversial and maybe not even as bad as Hagler, um, as, as the first Hagler fight. But Minter and Tefermo was controversial enough to warrant an immediate rematch. Interesting enough, right? Well, and, and it just it went to show how the politics could work yes. for somebody and against somebody else in seemingly totally equal situations where exactly. you had the, exactly. the head of the WBA at the time or the guy who was basically the, the behind-the-scenes uh action guy at the WBA, Elias Cordoba, basically, uh, according to reports and according to like the Pat Putnam article, uh, what happened was that Jose Suleiman said, no, we're not going to be issuing no immediate rematch. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, we'd, uh, Alan Minter's been waiting in the wings and he's our number one challenger. So, you know, he's got to, they got to wait for Minter and Antofermo to figure this shit out now. But then Elias Cordoba said, yeah, you know, that, that sounds about right. We'll go with that. 
But then according to Pat Putnam, he had a meeting with Bob Arum. And then after the meeting said, nah, we changed our mind. Actually, we think we should order an immediate rematch. And yeah. so it placed into a Fermo in a position where regardless of who he fought, there was going to be, there were threatening some sort of action against him from, and on top of that, uh, we've talked about this before a couple of years before this. So, uh, was around 1975, 76, 77, was that prolonged splitting of the WBA and WBC where they're feuding and shit like that and refusing to recognize each other and whatnot. And so on top of that, here's another situation where they're at odds and placing the fighters in a shitty situation. And Marvin Hagler, regardless, has just having to fucking sit. And it's ridiculous because, like you said, it was the same circumstance, basically. Hagler had a controversial fight with Interfermo, and Interfermo has a controversial fight with Minter. I think the main gripe with that one was that there was a, a judge from the UK or, um, that basically scored almost every round for Minter when it clearly shouldn't have been that way. And it made it look like there was a weird bias, and so they ordered an immediate rematch. They have a rematch, Minter chops him up and stops you know, Interfermo confirming everything, but... Yeah, it's funky that Hagler couldn't get an immediate rematch, but Interfermo was able to get one with Minter. Regardless, was Hagler that UK practiced. judge? Was that UK judge Adelaide Bird? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you need to confirm or deny. <laughs> um, but you know, it's just kind of sad that it took Hagler another year before he was finally able to get that um championship, and then on brand for Hagler, and the whole time he struggled in his entire career trying to get to that point. He couldn't even celebrate that win because of the racist assholes in the um in the arena that day throwing beer cans at him and his entourage. So, yeah, dude, so fucked up. Fucking uh, Minter said something to the effect of well, "never let a black man take the title or hold the title" or something like that. And I mean, it just wound up being somewhat well bandwagon racist fucking bandwagon after he cuts Minter up and beats the crap out of him. For whatever it was, two rounds they pelt yeah. him with, fuck, yeah, pelt him with fucking beer bottles he, and beer he cans. Goes on his knees, he's celebrating. He's finally going to become champion. He couldn't even get the belt put around him, anything like that. Yeah, they got to whisk him away out. undercover. Yeah. And someone said too, I think it was, um, it was in the book. It was in the book that um that Kimball wrote, the Four Kings. Yeah, Four, yeah, four Kings. Yeah. That he said that it was either he he witnessed this or someone else did that. They knew there was going to be trouble that they were selling beer by the case that night like over there and they said they were watching like skinheads walking up the ramp rocking up the rafters with like holding double cases of beer walking up there like, and they were just like and the guy was looking they're just like oh well that doesn't look good it's it's like having free bat night at dodger stadium along with quarter beer night or something you know what i mean it's like what yeah, the fuck are you doing bro but I mean, regardless, that doesn't excuse anything. It was fucking awful and it was stupid what they did and it fucked and and it just and it just I think, you know, going back to how we started, it probably further fueled this distrust and hatred and frustration from Hagler. Dude, he lost his first fucking uh middleweight title challenge unjust well didn't lose it but lost didn't get the title i mean to him it might as well have been a loss i think draw who gives a fuck you know what i mean i would have been pissed too and so that i think just further placed him in a position where he was like what the fuck am i trusting anybody for the petronellis are who got me to this point and who got me to the title eventually you know who the fuck am i putting my faith in yeah. so 
I think you have to kind of understand in that context when we go back and start talking about Leonard and, and Benitez, because obviously Hagler and Leonard eventually meet. Absolutely. And so that's what that what um that's what builds to this main event now is that like it's the polar opposite of what we've just come into. Hagler, you know, Hagler and Interfront are two guys, hard scrappers that had Sorry to, to interrupt you too. But on one of the broadcasts, you could see Ray Leonard. Uh, he's not even fucking suited up, nothing, just sitting ringside watching Hagler. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just and like, I wonder, too, I don't think he was thinking at that point, too, that eventually those two were going to fight. He was just watching it as an observer. It's just fucking wild. He was like a Hagler fan. He was happy to, you know, kind of thought that Hagler was job, too. You know, it's yeah, crazy. just wild. It really is, you know, considering that, well, it was eight years later, they finally get it on. But, um... Yeah, you know, the main event, man, it's polar opposites of the two guys that we were just talking about. You got Sugar Ray Leonard, the darling of the 1976 Olympic team, against Wilfred Benitez, the genius, the boy prodigy. Well, you know, so many different words you can use for Benitez and his skill level that at that point, no one had ever seen someone that young um, do the things they was able to do. He was a fucking wizard in the ring, bro, like an absolute wizard. And you were going to put those two in together to you know for the welterweight championship you couldn't get any better than that so again you got to go back to the beginning of the 70s really quick who was the dominant champion of that decade jose napolis you know what i mean after he knocked off curtis cokes um he was the resident champion and a great great champion at that one of the greatest welterweights who ever lived man his blend of speed and skill everything there was unparalleled um by the time he loses the championship though in 1975 to a very tough good a very good fighter by the name of john stracy of England, uh, the welterweight division's kind of you know in a in a turnstile again because like Munzon, you had a guy that was the dominant champion for so long, and all of a sudden when he either retires or loses, it puts the division in a tailspin momentarily until you get a guy who's going to be like you know hold the momentum again. So, Stracy was a good was a good fighter and a good champion, but clearly he didn't have the stuff to be a long reigning champion because after he made a couple of defenses, including one against Hedgeman Lewis. He ends up losing to um the very popular and a good fighter in himself, Carlos Palomino. Over at the um on the WBA side, you know, that title's being switched around like hot potatoes until a guy by the name of Angel Espada becomes champion. And pretty soon before he knows it, he runs into a precocious uh, teenager himself by the name of Pepino Cuevas. And Cuevas, you know, shockingly, who had a mediocre record himself and wasn't really looked upon as anything special, knocks the shit out of Espada and becomes champion. So now you got Angel, um, 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 excuse me, you got Pepino Cuevas as champion. You got Carlos Palomino as champion. Both of those guys are very, very good fighters, and they're looked upon maybe as eventually moving on themselves as like a, a potential super fight. Benitez at this point is down at junior welterweight. Um, he had just beaten the legendary Antonio Cervantes for the championship. Uh, there was already kind of questions arising about his, um, about his dedication and the things going on with him and yada, yada, yada. You know what I mean? Sugar Ray Leonard was already building himself at this point, too. He had at the 76 Olympics, he had just turned pro and he was still building himself up. So he wasn't quite at that point. Everything was still coming to a head. Um, Benitez, excuse, Benitez eventually moves up, fights Palomino. Uh, what was it? In 1979, I think it was, and scores a razor thing decision over him, becomes champion, right? Um, over on the welterweight side, um, Papino Cuevas is still champion and he's still dominating everything like that. But like Leonard, you know, there's, there's like, as Leonard is about to become, you know, as building up to become number one, 
there's the there's the question now is he going to fight the Pino Cuevas which would look like it might be happening or is he going to fight Wilfred Benitez now it's going to end up happening he's going to fight Benitez or obviously that might be even that's like the more um I would say the fight for the fans that would be the fight that everyone might be more clamoring for because the contrast the styles the everything like that you can't get any bigger than that if you put this in 2022 today dude that's like as big as it gets like these dudes yeah you can't beat that Benitez is 21 and also uh undefeated yeah he's he's had a draw but he's undefeated and I think the draw I want to say was against Weston in a pretty good fight Um, or it was Weston or um Bruce Curry no I think it was Weston because he beat Bruce Curry by like bullshit decision that's right and so he's undefeated and he's only 21 years old almost got he almost has 44 Four zero four, not fourteen. Four zero fights under his belt. Twenty one years old. Now, I mean, that's kind of its own issue, though. That's its own story because Wilfred Benitez, who was who's actually born in New York, believe it or not, he was actually grew up for a little bit in I want to say South Bronx, and okay. he and uh, but then he, he and his brothers, when they were little, started getting into trouble on the streets, and his father Gregorio. He was the youngest of four brothers. Gregorio, their dad, moves them to Puerto Rico, kind of the out to the uh, outskirts of San Juan, and starts training them all. Um, mm-hmm. And and Wilfred basically showed, I guess, the the most talent. But all all of the brothers were fighters, and so starting from a really young age, he turned pro actually at I think 15 years old because Gregorio had falsified records to get him to turn pro. You don't then, say. What's that? You don't say. Yeah, dude. I mean, and that's its own. Whew. Yeah, bro. The the daddy issues there run deep, real deep. But um, you know, it's 16 years old. Wilfred Benitez is headlining at the Felt Forum, which was like kind of like the old school Madison Square Garden theater, and it's 16 years old. It all so already he was on the way to kind of start him and becomes the youngest uh world champion ever at 17 years old. And so already you're kind of seeing, you know, the the groundwork being laid for a pretty big issue. Uh as soon as he wins the championship. And like you said, there's already been a lot of talk about him just not liking to train, not wanting to train, fucking around, getting into trouble. And his dad writes an article, pens an article for The Ring that says essentially the reasons why my son will lose the championship or something like that, you know, and it's like, holy fuck, dude. Imagine like, you know, you have some massive accomplishment and one of your parents goes on to social media and is like, this is why this accomplishment means nothing. Like you'd feel like shit, you know, absolute shit. And so uh, in any case, this one to think, man, because Benitez was so gifted. You watch his fights back then, and he was one of those guys like he never hold he never held his hands like right up there. Like he always kind of held them like over here, and he just had these instincts, bro. Like just the way he boop 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 boop. You couldn't catch him, and if he, you like, he lost some of his biggest fights, and then also on top of that, with all due respect to him, the way that he wound up. It's almost like he still doesn't get like, you know, people talk about Nicolino Loche, understandably. They talk about Willie Pep, understandably. Purnell, understandably. All these great defensive masters, dude. I'm just saying, don't sleep on Wilfred Benitez. You can't. Benitez was an absolute genius. Just a genius, man. And 
I mean, no one look. There's nobody that will ever that will in this in in history. I don't think that will ever able to replicate a beneath a seventeen year old beating Antonio Cervantes for the world championship. That is insane. Yeah, like he Cervantes he wasn't was just some scrub. No, you know there was almost like a joke. It wasn't really a joke as much as it was like a thing that people became that they had. To, if you said Antonio Cervantes's name, you had to put the legendary behind ahead of it. Like he wasn't a bum. Cervantes was the man of the junior welterweight division. After he beat Loche, you know, from the early 70s, when from his loss to Benitez up until he finally lost to Aaron Pryor in 1980, Cervantes was the man of that division. No one was touching that dude, all right? He was a beast and legitimately still one of the top five greatest junior welterweights that ever lived, all right? Benitez beat him at 17. That, that, that doesn't, you know, like... <laughs> I'm talking Michael Jordan who plays basketball, Tony Williams who who plays drums. Certain people are just born to do certain things. Benitez was born to box. Like that's a level of IQ that certain that most people were never able to like, you know, ever achieve something like that. Yeah, dude. It's it's something that's it's one of those kinds of records that will just be so incredibly difficult to beat. And it's like also well, on some level too, because at 17, you can't be like, I don't even think you're allowed to fight for a world title. Well, that's And and that's what I'm saying is that like on some level, like, do you want that record? Being like, I don't, don't put any fucking 16 year olds in there. What are you talking about? Remember what, what, who was it the other day? That little, little kid at the other day. That that was posted up, yeah. That got beat up in Mexico. That poor kid. God damn it, dude. Yeah. We don't want this to happen, but I mean, but that's the, that's what I'm talking about though. Is so going into this Ray Leonard fight, dude, uh, you know, Wilfred Benitez was a seasoned, seasoned veteran at 21 years old. He knew what the fuck he was doing. And, and, you know, on the flip side, Ray Leonard, uh, I mean, it's not like he was un without experience. No, he's, he wasn't inexperienced, but just, there was a pretty big gap in professional experience there. It's true. You know, Leonard was him he came up great early on i'm not even gonna try to lie about that like his career if you want to um when he turned pro from the 76 olympics there was a thing in ring magazine years ago where they compared him and ali's opponents early on and leonard's clearly trumped ali's you know what i mean yeah because ali fought some dirtbags fucking early on he absolutely did but like by the time 19 by 1978 um you know, Leonard was already fighting guys like, you know, if you look at 77, 27 and 3, 21 and 11. Um, by the yeah, time. Yeah, like ranked dudes. Absolutely. By 1978, when he fights Al Heyman's brother, Bobby Heyman, for instance, who people would be like, oh, Al Heyman had a brother who boxed. Yes, he did. And, you know, Bobby Heyman wasn't a contender or anything like that, but he was a guy that was around the block for a long time. That's when he started fighting dudes left and right. Like he moves on. He fought um, Mickey Ward's half-brother, Dick Eklund. Um, he fights Roger May uh, Floyd Mayweather Sr. He fights the very, very tough Randy Shields, who was a pain in the ass for everybody in the welterweight division from the late, from the 70s up until the early 80s, and doesn't get talked about enough. Very good contender. Um, Armando Munez, longtime contender, who um, from losing to Emil Griffith early on in his career to giving P Carlos Palomino absolute hell in their welterweight title fight to um, giving... Jose Napolis, like that's how far he went back. He even went back to fight in Napolis. Like Armando Munez was just one of those longtime contenders that fought a who's who of everybody in the 70s. Um, and by the time he fought Leonard, would have given Leonard, you know, a hell of a fight, but Leonard was able to blast him out too. You know, like this was this competition as Leonard was coming up with. You know, a lot of these dudes today, when they're built up, they fight guys 
with inflated records. They fight journeymen. They fight guys way past their best. You know, they're not actually being matchmaked to like really like gain experience to that degree. Some, I mean, there's some people out there like top rank. We like to give them shit sometimes for some of their antics, but they have great Hall of Fame matchmakers that know how to build their prospects. Other, you know, other people like Golden Boy, some, you know, to a degree, same, same as well. And Leonard was built up. Well, you can't say that, even though he had it, like, it looked like he might have an inflated record. Look at the guys he's fighting. You know what I mean? Like you go from Armando Muniz to Johnny Gant, who was a longtime um, fringe contender, fought a who's who, Fernand Marcat, another guy from the, um, from, from Canada, who had a long time career from the sixties up until then fought a who's who and a really rugged individual who didn't get knocked out by many people and Leonard blasted him. So by the, and Aldolfo Virouette as well. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. Edwin Virouette's brother. Yes, bro. Both very good know, fighters. Bad motherfuckers, man. Marcos Geraldo and Marcos Geraldo was the one that actually like got people concerned about Leonard because Geraldo was a rugged, big, tough, rugged individual who, um, fought everybody back in the day mexican middleweight you know which is kind of an anomaly in itself but he went the distance with Hagler. he gave shit to leonard where leonard had a damaged eye and everything like that and mike trainer leonard's manager and always protective over leonard and very a genius in itself too because he, he was the guy that made sure leonard never actually like hooked up with a promoter anyone who bid on the most money you know like he was a great manager I'm, you know, if you lean, if you read Leonard's book, if you read other accounts, he got freaked out after this fight because Leonard took a lot of punishment in that fight. Geraldo was a bad motherfucker and he was bigger than Leonard and he gave Leonard the business that fight. And Leonard was puffed up and his eyes were a little damaged and all that. And Mike Trainer almost wanted Leonard to retire. He was like scared. He was like, I don't want you taking this type of punishment. And anyways, you know, that was the type of guy Geraldo was. Didn't have a great record, but he was just a rugged, bad motherfucker. Um... Pete Ranzani. And so by the time he's about to fight Wilfred Benitez, his last fight before that was against Andy Price. Andy Price at that point. Um, you see, you poor, see, poor Andy Price. Poor Andy Price, right? Andy, Andy the Hawk Seemed Price. Like such a nice guy. Seriously. You know, a rugged contender had been around the block for a long time, deserved the title shot probably. And he, at that point, was the only person who had beat both Carlos Palomino and Pepino Cuevas. And so a lot of people were calling him at that point the uncrowned champion before Benitez beat, beat Palomino and before Leonard ascended. And they were saying he deserves the title shot, yada, yada, yada. He's also managed by Marvin Gaye. Keep that in mind really quick. So, you know, um, Andy Price is the NABF champion. Um, I know he felt a little, like, overconfident. He thought Leonard was a pretty boy and thought he could, like, you know, he, with his experience, he could beat him. And... Um, Marvin Gaye before the fight, I believe he bet all of his money on Andy Price on a win. I'm talking not just money like he had on him. I'm talking like his whole fortune on an Andy Price win. And um, what happened, Pat? Andy Price got absolutely slaughtered, dude. Like, I mean, it was like, and he just like, you know, it was like, remember that video from a couple of years ago where Fool was just playing the motherfucking like drums on dude's head in the subway? Like, yes. he's like, da, 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 ba, da, ba, 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 you know, like 50 times in like three seconds. Okay. It wasn't that quite, quite that many with Andy Price, but yeah, he just got blasted real bad. Um, and I think that this was kind of one of those instances, or at least one of the earlier instances where it didn't always happen, but it happened frequently 
where if you if you fucked around and pissed Ray Leonard off, yes. like it brought out a, a real mean side of him because like he was he was a cruel fighter. Like he was not a fighter that was like going to let you slide. And especially if you were talking shit. And I mean, yeah, dude, he was pretty except for that gap in his teeth, which he got fixed later because fools were probably fucking with him about it. <laughs> but he was the type of dude that was like, he didn't take that shit lightly. He took it to heart and then he was going to whoop your ass for it. And usually that's what happened. Usually he did. And so, uh, you know, he, he knew price was talking shit, calling him a pretty boy. He thought that he was going to be able to whoop his ass. He had a lot more experience too. And he price was really experienced. He got fucking blasted. And like I said, poor Andy Price, because it's like it's almost like sad. Like, you know, the dude just gets totally overwhelmed. He didn't have a chance. No, and you watch the fight, and like at first they're like they're you know, Lennon's probing, he's probing, but you see the intensity in his eyes. And Price landed a counter or two, but he's like, you know, they're just kind of like they're they're you know, they're probing each other and still feeling each other out. But like you said, man, that might have been the first time people really saw the true like I had a tiger with Leonard because once Price got on the ropes. <laughs> yeah, he backs to the ropes and Ray's just like, mine. Yeah. Ray, like, Price starts freezing up a little bit and Ray just, you know, jabbing. And then at one point, he lands that right hand. Price freezes up a little bit and then Ray just unloads. He lands yeah. a body shot and then just, just go crazy. Oh. And the yeah, way like, Price's head, you see Price's head, like the, you know, mm going going in various directions and then finally as he goes down he goes down in an absolute heap and he looks like a fucking deer that was just born and had, doesn't know how to use their legs yet you know yeah it was bad dude and so you could see uh it, it i think probably brought some belief back or some spark back you know into the idea that okay all right i think we're all right i think we're okay with this leonard kid i think he'll be all right and, and so that was like calipulated them to the benitez fight well, and and those were back in the days too, where the that Andy Price fight was two months before the Benitez fight. And now, if that happened now, people would be like, "Oh my god, he fought two months ago! Oh my god!" You know, now you couldn't even that shit wouldn't happen. But uh, it it I think led a lot of people to well, look, you know, looking right at right there on the record, dude. He gets Marcos Geraldo, and then three months later, he's in with Ranzani, and then like a little over a month later, it's Andy Price. So obviously, nine he's fights in 1979. Nine the, fights in 1979. <laughs> well, and his pace obviously slowed a lot after that. But even so, that's a lot of experience jam-packed into a pretty short uh, period of time and probably contributed to his eye issues too. But and even so, and, and I mean, dude, by this time, I think he'd already like threatened retirement once or twice too already. So, I mean, you know. He wasn't even supposed to turn pro. That's true. Yeah, he, he threatened to retire from boxing entirely after he won the gold. Hard. So I wasn't even gonna turn pro, so I like what do you think? Thankfully, that wasn't the case because he turned out to be obviously a really, really, really good fighter. But he packed a lot of experience into this short period of time, and especially in those in those couple of fights leading up to the Benitez fight. So I mean, it it makes sense uh, knowing that you have this contrast of styles. Okay, we have this newly awakened Ray Leonard that's blasting motherfuckers, and then we have. Wilfred Benitez, who is a de defensive master, let's pit these two against each other, dude. And bro, it was a beautiful fight. Like and the stare down. That's that's the first thing that has to be mentioned for that. 
So Benitez is, as we found out, was like notorious for that because he did it with Hearns a few years later. But that stare down is the stuff of legends. I still say today that's the greatest stare down in boxing history. And I mean, as wake weird you as up out of a fucking that, dead like, sleep, you know, dude. Like, yeah, it makes you seem like a weird hardcore fan that you can like judge stare downs, but nothing will ever compare to that because the minute both of those dudes got in the ring, Benitez, who was a little bit shorter, just gets right up in Leonard's chest and starts. And Sugar Ray's staring right back down at him too. And this was before even the ju- like before the referee was giving them any instructions. Like they just straight up, you know. Both of them had huge egos, huge. And both of them undefeated. Benitez feeling as the champion. Leonard's beneath him. Leonard feeling this is going to be a chance in the coronation. I'm going to let this guy intimidate me. And they're just, they're right here. Like you see, like literally nose to nose. They could kiss each other if they wanted to. And they're just staring and neither one of them will bunch. Incredible. Dude. It's easily one of the best. And, and the Hearns stare down is real good too. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, just the intensity and it goes on for like uncomfortably long. Like where yeah. you're sitting there like, are they going to break the stare? No? Okay. Well, they oh, did. The, uh, no, their cornermen were the ones who had to break it apart. Yeah, yeah the, uh, they peel Ray Leonard away and Benitez is still trying to like, he's like, nope, not moving. And they're like, come, come on, dude, come on. And you know, finally he goes around. But, you know, it wound up being uh, such a closely matched fight for so much of it that, like, not until basically the final moments does one really gain a foothold because it was so, I mean, it's it's almost, I think, to a lot of people, it would be not enjoyable to watch. Uh, it's fought on a high enough level that it's not awful or anything like that. But it's if you don't like that kind of stylistic matchup, uh, Leonard did not come aggressively at him like you know, like a, like the Price fight or something. He totally respected the fact that Wilfred Benitez is who he is, and I think that he tried to like he he tried to get shit going in a number of rounds. But it was like he would try, and then Benitez would be like whoop 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 whoop, and, and Leonard would be like, all right, all right, all right, let's calm down, you know, because it was like you can't you can't get him like that, you know. Dude, even if Benitez was hurt, you showed it in the Hearns fight. Uh, like, you know, if Benitez just had that type of, like, wired and system inside of him that even if he was hurt and, like, you know, he was a little vulnerable, he was still going to make you miss with multiple punches because that was just how he was wired. And if you threw a multiple, if you threw, like, a 10-punch flurry at him, chances are you'd miss about seven of them. It's just That's just the way he was. Yeah, if not more, yeah. yeah. So... Leonard had to take his time with that. You couldn't go in there and get wild with him because all you're going to do is waste your energy. And eventually Benitez will start picking you apart from there because like, you know, you're just getting wild. And he was a natural counter puncher. That's what he did. But Leonard had such a great boxing brain himself. He knew how to work with it. And like you said, it wasn't the most exciting fight, but it was brilliant and very just intense in the way you're watching each guy. It's like playing chess. And that's the way boxing's supposed to be too, man. It's not just too... Like, as much as I can enjoy Gotti Award or Bobby Chacon. Yeah, of course. Um, Luca Lamont for, you know, beating the shit out of each other. Like, I'd love to watch two guys, as long as it's not that, as long as they're throwing punches, um, you know, trying to outfane each other, trying to outcounter each other. You clearly see they're playing chess and trying to work. And that's what Leonard and Benitez was doing. Benitez is a natural thinker. The guy's Bobby Fischer on the, on the, on the, in the ring, you know. He doesn't have to think that much. Because a guy like Benitez, everything came so naturally to him that he didn't even have to like use his mind that like he just knew what he was doing. 
And that made it on his opponent, even a person as brilliant as Leonard, to make them think even more because they knew they were dealing with a person of equal brilliance, if not even more so than them. Because that was just what they naturally did. So you have to, like, calm down. You can't just go in there and wait in. You have to, like, pick your spots. It might not be the most exciting thing, but fuck it. You got to make sure you're going to win this fight because you're dealing with a guy with the equal brilliance of you. Like, that's what makes this fight so fucking perfect is because you had guys with their boxing brains of that acumen, of that, of that level, trying to outthink each other, trying to outfeign each other, trying to out, like, fight each other. It, it's brilliant stuff, man. And if Lennon wasn't at his peak, Benitez... Apparently, according to him and his dad, he only traded for two weeks for that fight. Probably one on one still. <laughs> yeah, dude. And I mean, I guess it's it's tough to know what Benitez' like true potential could have been because throughout his career, they said that even since he was a, a fairly you know young teenager, like sixteen or so, that his dad was well aware that he was fucking around too much. And it makes sense, dude. His dad literally used to, uh, Gregorio Benitez used to charge people a quarter at the playground for to watch his children fight. I didn't even know that. Interesting. So by the time you get to your, like, you know, 16 years old, you're probably sick of that shit, dude. And so it, clearly Benitez, Wilfred Benitez, had started fucking around already by that point. I'm not trying to make excuses for the guy. Not only that, just too, is what it is. What's that? Gregorio is a piece of shit, too, himself. Like, I well, let's just, like, let's put it this way, dude. I mean, and we know what boxing is at this point. So I guess at some, at some point we have to kind of examine ourselves. But at the same time, uh, Gregorio had four sons. And to my knowledge, at least three of the four, if not all four, because three of the four turned pro mm -hmm. and all through all three of them, I think it was the oldest who did not. And all three of them wound up with pugilistic dementia, uh, Wilfred, the most severe. Mm -hmm. And the, I would, like I said, I believe it was the oldest one. He did either didn't turn pro or only fought like a couple times and had to retire or something like that. And the reason why was Gregorio had had given some funky excuse about something, but the a lot of people suspected the real reason why was that he also had pugilistic dementia at a really young age. So in any case, three out of four minimum sons that he totally ruined, you know, by the time they were fairly young and they were shot. And so, uh, yeah, I would say that that qualifies as kind of a piece of shit. And on top of that, like I said, the Ring magazine article, he was constantly talking shit on his son. And he was a gambler too. Like he would take the yes. purse. Also, them on yes. Yeah. He was a horse. Uh, he bet on horses, I think it was. It was horses, yes. Totally. Yeah. yeah, not cool. Not fucking cool. So, yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, this could have been potentially Wilfred Benitez a big triumph for him, defeating Ray Leonard and undefeated Ray Leonard. I mean, yeah, obviously it could have been written off. Ray Leonard was young. He was fairly young in his career. And if he suffered a loss, so fucking what? You know, it's not the end of the world. But the training, for sure. Excuses? Nah, man, it just is what it was. He was fucking around from a pretty young age. And had he reached, uh, you know, a higher potential, who knows, man? Who knows? So, let me ask you this, Pat. Do you consider him the fifth king, even though he didn't fight Hagler? Hagler? I mean, yeah, dude. I think that's kind of a technicality. I think Hagler would have defeated him. Well, I don't think there's any question well, about I mean, that. Do you think, though, he's not the fifth king because he didn't get a chance to fight Hagler? 
No, I think it's fair to call him the fifth king, dude. I mean, as much as he accomplished, like, it's almost kind of, like, unfair. Not only that, too, he fought Hearns. He fought them. And and fought them almost on even, like, basically on even terms, too. It wasn't like... like, I would would almost consider him, like, you know how with the the Champions Forever video, you have... Yeah, like Norton. We talked about that before. You have Norton. You have Norton and Holmes, all right? And so you have Norton, Holmes, Ali, and Frazier. Who did Holmes, like, Holmes, Holmes, um, fought Norton. He fought Ali. He didn't fight Frazier. He didn't fight Foreman. Like, Benitez, him in that group, he fought Leonard. He fought Hearns. He fought Durant. He didn't end up fighting Hagler. You should put him, you know, if they had the same thing, you probably should have put him there too. I think it's, I think it's fair too. Yeah. Yeah. We'll stop a ham show. Um, and wasn't upset by him, he would have got that title shot against Hagler. So, yeah, and I mean, he he fought nearly even up, at least in the the fights that he took nearer to his prime. He fought nearly even up with Hearns and Leonard. I mean, he did. He he could he clearly lost to both of them, but I mean, he gave them both fits and he whipped Duran in a beautiful one of my favorite performances. So I mean, it's yeah, I don't think that it's unfair at all, dude. Clearly, a super great fighter. Uh, you know, one of the best Puerto Rican fighters ever, uh, without question. And I mean, yeah, dude, to, to kind of ignore his accomplishments, especially among his among the guys who are, yeah, dude, it sucks. And especially, yeah. and and it's compounded by the fact that he's in such dire straits now. I know, man. It's sad, like. He was when he got inducted into the Hall of Fame. He was still with it, to a degree. I mean, he was you know suffering a little bit, but he got inducted. Um, I want to say nineteen ninety five, nineteen ninety six, around that time, right? Yeah, and, something like that. Yeah, like there's photos. You know, it's in the magazine. They show photos of him. He's there with his mom. He's like looking at his ring, whatever. But he's with it. Like he's able to like you know converse with other people, sign autographs, do all that stuff. It, it's awful to see the, the condition that he's in today. You know, it, it's really, really tragic. Yeah. And to think that he's probably in better shape or like in better conditions than what he was a few years ago is even still mind blowing because like he's, you know, it's, it's bad and he's still young. Yeah. He well, and be, you know? his contemporaries, dude, like Hagler before he, he passed away was in great Leonard. shape. Leonard's in great shape. Durand fell out of good shape for a while, but now he's in good shape, you know, pretty good shape. And all of them spoke very well, very clearly. We're doing fine. And so, I mean, you look at his con- his contemporaries and then you look at him. I mean, I think that there's, you can definitely see what went wrong in the formula for sure. I think it was because he was taking punches from grown men at the age of 16 years old. Yep. No, no, absolutely no question whatsoever. And in during years when we've, I mean, fuck, dude, we're basically just making a case against boxing on the show. But during years when uh, uh, your brain's still developing, you know, your brain is not done growing yet. So suffering fucking concussions, mini concussions, not good, not super good. So whatever you're going to do, do it safely. But still, man, like, regardless of all that, this was like, Benitez at this point is 79. Like, if you can watch these things, he was just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And if, you know, like, I know a lot of people say, like, different fights, you bring up, you be like, oh, what's the fight you would want um, your students to watch if you're trying to teach them certain things? We get a lot of um, Tony McCallum, very, very valid, and other fights. And for whatever reason, I don't see a lot of people ever mention Leonard Benitez, but, like, you got to watch it. It's it's incredible. It's just 
the contrast, the styles, the fainting, the different things. They're trying to outthink each other the entire fight. And Leonard is clearly high-wired to the highest point where he's forced to try to do the best he can. And I feel for Benitez, too, because the fight was stopped in the last round. And you think, okay, he, he got fights his ass off. And there was literally only six seconds left. Like, you didn't have to stop it at that point. He wasn't in dire straits where he was going to get knocked yeah. unconscious. You know? Yeah, he would have been all right had they left it. But... Yeah. He fought his ass off in it. And Leonard, you do you gotta give Leonard credit, dude, because this is one of his biggest victories. Uh and I mean this was a fight where he pulled it out of his ass. Like, I mean, it wasn't like he was he was on the verge of losing per se, but it was a fight where he needed that separation and he needed to kind of step it up when he did, and he did. And and tell me if you agree with this. I don't think it's talked about enough anymore because maybe because it was his first title fight. Everybody brings up the Hagler fight, rightfully so. Everybody brings up the second Duran fight, you know, things like that. I don't hear enough talk about the, you know, his first win over, you know, his first title win over Benitez. It's just like it's confirmed and people talk about it sometimes, but like in terms of just like, you know, being yeah. added to the I same kind of like um no moss and such, it's it's not there. It never has I been. agree. No, I agree, dude. It's it's one of his biggest wins. Uh, like as far as like being no controversy or no weird nothing, it's just a win. And it was before uh, there. You could talk about the training and all that type of stuff, but even so, Benitez was obviously still like he had not really started to slide at this point. He was still yeah. looking good, and so yeah, dude. I think that uh, it's a really good win and underrated. Probably should be talked about more. That's why we oh. talked about it today. Absolutely, and that's why we're talking about it right now. So, for my sure. question to you is: Would you have paid the pay per view? Uh, would you have paid the pay per view price for this today? If there was a double header, how much do you think it would have gone for? Man, that show would have been. They're trying to charge like one hundred twenty-five bucks or something, dude. Guaranteed for HD too. Come on. But these for the double header like this. Shit. It would at least yeah. be a hundred. You would think, right? Yeah, or they would have tried to pull some bullshit where like to like a dual site or you know something like that or two different shows i don't know man i don't know man because again like hagler interferma could hold its own yeah. as and leonard benitez obviously is a super fight on its own i would think if you're going to make a comparison today right i would say a close one would be and i don't think it's on this level i don't think it's on this level at all of what leonard benitez and hagler interferma was but if you want to make a comparison think about something like when um Mayweather fought Canelo and then Danny Garcia fought. Uh... That's that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. I was going to go back a little bit. I think it was a little farther. Yeah, like 10 years before that. But like, that's a good one. I was going to say um, Morales Pacquiao and Arce Hussein. Yes. Yeah, totally. Because I remember going into that and being like, oh, shit, this is going to be some good <laughs> shit. And it was. It was fucking, that was a fucking good ass pay-per-view. But um but yeah, like it just doesn't really happen. And, well, and that was a fucking pay per view, so it's not like you know. So but yeah, I remember when like that was that was on the Floyd um that was on the Floyd um Canelo undercard, right? What the what? Danny, uh, Danny, yeah. Danny, yeah, 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 yeah. Because I remember, I remember. Uh, well, it wasn't Chino. No, excuse me. It was Maidana, not Chino. Or yeah, yeah. That that shit was fucking good, dude. No, no, not Maidana. Fuck, I just said Maidana. Excuse me. Um. Matisse. Matisse, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Garcia Matisse. And that shit was uh like, you know, top two fighters at 140 after oh, that was a kinda... big fight that people were clamoring for. So yeah, that was a good pay-per-view. But I, I guess if you want to make a slight comparison, that would be something similar to that. 
where like you got the both fights where they're clearly they can be their own thing and then they they stacked it to that but like Leonard Benitez and Hagler and Fermo would just never be on the same card today. I'm sorry. This is never, ever, ever. Well, yeah. You know, promoters, networks and whatnot, they've figured out a way to to maximize, like, the profits by pretending that these fights, and I mean, dude, everybody's fucking guilty, some more than others, for pretending that these fights, and we've talked about it before, that are just normal fights, like contender versus contender, because yeah. one guy might have a belt, but he's not the, or they're not the fucking champion. It's just two top fighters in a division. That's it. Not a super fight, but they treat it as if it's a super fight. And you, this fucking Saturday, ah! you know, and it's, and so every fight's a super fight and they figured out a way to maximize this shit. So they wouldn't put two fights like that on the same card because they'd be like, well, why, why, you know, why make fans happy when we could just line our pockets? So, I mean, and it's not to say they weren't looking to line their pockets back then. It's just that I think they had more accountability to a lot more entities than they, than they do now. But anyway, that's, it's old other fucking podcast so yeah it, i would pay the fee though dude because that's a good card i totally would too man I, that that's definitely not a streamable card for me i would actually willingly pay the money for that i'd pay if, money for that and not i would try if i wasn't working it that would try to be actually um i would fly out for that something like that totally because that would be a good meetup for people i think like if it happened today in 2022 you know everybody on boxing twitter or at least our friends the like people we're close with would definitely want to be out for something like that and it would be one of those memorable affairs where, unlike Crawford and um, um, Spence, which didn't take place, if it was taking place like that, I think everyone would be convening there, and you know, just it would be a beautiful affair. I don't know, man. You you flying out to Nebraska for Crawford Avanasian or? Definitely not, man. Nebraska <laughs> what December? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying to go to Nebraska in December, <laughs> January, February, March, April, man. <laughs> Just I'm go through the calendar. I'm good. I just know it's cold and it doesn't really get warm. All right. Sorry. Yeah. I'm good. Nah, dude. Uh, it, it was an incredible double header, especially in retrospect and one that nobody really ever talks about. I mean, and part, a big part of that is how anticlimactic uh, Hagler Anto Fermo one ended. And even then, after that fight, a lot of people are calling Hagler the uncrowned champion. Who knows, dude? We never, at that point, nobody knew. Nobody knew that they were going to be meeting up years down the line. So it's a pretty underrated card for that reason as well. Dude, it's one of those things that like if I could find a if I could find the poster of it that would be affordable to me, I would love to own it and frame it. But <laughs> unfortunately that hasn't happened yet. So Yeah. But man. I mean it's just I, I like that's why we did the show today though, because it was like it's a very important anniversary. There's a lot of history involved with the players involved, with the fighters involved. And what happened subsequently, and how they got there, and what happened afterwards, and how their careers intertwined. So that's why we're here, my friend. You are that deal finder, though, dude. So, so I'm not counting you out in that one. For shirts, for shirts, okay, for shirts. Listen, yeah, well, one before we head off, there's one shirt I'm looking for, man. There was like the whole Caesar's Palace logo. It was even before Leonard became champion, and it says on the they had the Caesar's Palace thing, and it says Sugar Ray Leonard NABF champion on the bottom of it. If I have one of those, I will retire from from um from the shirt game. <laughs> have you even seen any for sale ever, and you just couldn't no, get them, or you I just never seen found it? one? I saw one in a ring magazine one time years ago, as like his brother was wearing it. Never seen it for sale, dude. I've I seen. Have, like, I have like four shirts. 
that are my holy grails that I've seen in magazines that I'm hoping and praying one day will pop up somewhere. Or if I meet somebody and they say they have a huge, huge collection of shit, but uh, not yet. Dude, I and it's funny because I've been trying to find one of those fucking uh, those old ring posters that's like 120 years of heavyweight champions, like you know, and, and it has the it's like the gold colored. I there the, every so often they pop up, but usually in really shitty shape or like super overpriced. Because I'm looking at these motherfucking ads and it's like 4.95, bro. Don't do me like that, y'all. Come on, eBay. Come on, eBay. No, but it's a. Uh, no, it's it's a really cool event, dude, and I appreciate you. You know, there wasn't really all that much homework because we've watched these fights and we know a lot of these stories already. But uh, still, a lot of fun, man. Thank you. I have to talk about it. absolutely, man. It's always a blast talking about that. And um, as always, if you listened, I hope you enjoyed it today. Yeah, dude. I'm. I mean, I think if people are listening for history, they generally enjoy the history. So hopefully, so. But if you did listen, and thank you. We do appreciate it. And whatever podcast apps you listen through, please subscribe and leave a rating. We appreciate that as well. And as when it comes to watching on YouTube, thank you. And subscribe to that too. Leave us a comment. Try to respond back. Social media wise, the Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on Facebook and Instagram, but also on that dying total piece of shit they call Twitter. So go and hook up with us there, but also individually we're there on the said dying piece of shit. Twitter, that is not the person I'm about to name. <laughs> Just in case there's any ambiguity, Eris, go find Eris on Twitter as Punch Zone Eris. Me, Patrick Connor, go find me. There's Patrick M. Connor, and we'll talk to you soon. Eris, we will hook up, bro. Be good, everyone. Later, buddy. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.